We have just two studies left in this wonderful gospel. Um, we've been in the book of John for uh, about a year and a half, and I was meeting with another pastor this week, and we were just talking about you know things that we're studying, and I said, you know, we're going to be wrapping up John this week, and it's been so wonderful to be in it for you know a year and a half, and his mouth dropped to the floor. He said, a year and a half? He's like, we just started it three months ago, and we're at chapter 18. <laughs> and I said, well, isn't that the wonderful thing, is that you can, you, can, uh, you can study it and go through it in sort of a broad, you know, sort of survey like that and get a lot out of it as well as digging into it and beating it for years, right? It's just amazing because you never can plumb the depths of God's word. So he was just so, uh, he was encouraged that we would take a year and a half to go through John's gospel. But um, the primary section of his gospel has ended. That ended with chapter 20. We did that last uh, last week. Um, that's because the culmination of the gospel of John has been the resurrected Jesus. That's, that's been the whole thing he's been trying to get us to, is the resurrected Jesus. Um, and it's really sort of the final sign of, of Jesus. You know, John's gospel is famous for the, the seven miracles that he you know, picks out that Jesus did, even though there's many more miracles, and just highlights those miracles. But the, the resurrection of Christ obviously is a sign in itself. Uh, evidence that um, one of the evidence that John has presented to support his purpose in writing the gospel in the first place. And that was where we ended last week. Verse 31 of chapter 20 is the purpose statement of the gospel of John. We've revisited several times throughout this study, and that's where we ended last week. He wrote, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Last week, we looked at John's detailed account of three post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And uh, we had this handout uh, last week that just sort of recaps the um, resurrection to the ascension. And if you notice again, just in the bold italicize um, font, those are the appearances of Jesus. So number six starts with the first appearance. You remember last week we looked at his first appearance was to Mary Magdalene. Number seven is the second appearance. He appeared to the uh, other women, but John doesn't cover that appearance. And then number nine is his third appearance. He appears to Peter. Some people flip-flop that with his fourth appearance, which is the, to the two men on the road to Emmaus, which is number 10 there. Um, but last week, we also looked at number 12. His fifth appearance is to, to the 10 apostles. Thomas is absent, so we looked at that one. John highlights that. As well as the following Sunday, eight days later, he is, his sixth appearance is to the apostles again, but this time, Thomas is with them. Because do you remember, a whole week goes by where they're saying, we, Thomas, we saw Jesus. Thomas, we saw Jesus. And he's the whole week going, no, I don't believe it. No, I don't believe it until I can stick my hands in his, you know, fingers in his hands and his side. I'm not going to believe it. And so Jesus appears eight days later, and Thomas is there, and he believes. Um, today, we're going to see uh, another one of those appearances coming up. It's number 14 on your chart uh, there. But just hang, keep on to that. It'll be handy for you in a bit. But the question is this. If, if the culmination of John's gospel is chapter 20, the resurrected Christ, why do we have chapter 21? Right? What is the purpose of having another uh, chapter? In fact, Chapter 20 is such, such an obvious culmination of the entire gospel. A lot of people uh, look at chapter 21 as having been written by someone else, by a, a different author. Uh, but there's no evidence for that theory. There are no extant copies uh, at all that exist that have chapter 21 missing. Like there's no copy that we have that just has 20 uh, chapters of John. Every copy has this last one. So the question is, why did John write it? 
Well, I mentioned this last week. It is an epilogue. It's an epilogue. Um, Just like the prologue John uses to open the gospel, which is the first five verses, John uses an epilogue to close it. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger said this, the presence of an epilogue seems required by the opening prologue in order to preserve balance and symmetry of structure. Well, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's what it does there. Uh, But the epilogue, I think, is a fitting conclusion to this gospel because of what it does for us. It answers a few questions. Um, It confirms some truths, maybe that we want confirmed. Answers some things that haven't been quite wrapped up. Uh, First, for us, it confirms uh, primarily who the author is. The author is none other than John, right? And if you remember way back to our introduction to this book a year and a half ago, I took us to this chapter because this chapter is the one that confirms for us who the author is. Uh, So think about that. If he hadn't written this, we really maybe wouldn't be positive about who um, the author is. But he tells us in this chapter, it is none other than John. Second, it addresses a false rumor about John. There apparently was a false rumor circulating about this time uh, when this would have been written, that he would not die before the Lord's return. So he wants to put that um, rumor to rest, and he covers that in this chapter as well. Uh, Third thing, and this is pretty important, it brings closure to the story of Peter. Think about it. When's the last time, well, last time we saw Peter was coming out of a tomb, not quite sure what took place. But think about it. If we didn't have this, Peter's still the guy that just denied Jesus. Uh, Peter's the guy that was absent at the cross. Uh, Peter's the guy that, you know, walked out of the tomb, seeing an empty, just bewildered, uh, confused. So you would have a bewildered, uh, you know, Jesus-denying apostle walking around. We wouldn't have any idea of why, how to get back into action. You know, why do you get back into the game here? Chapter 21 tells us. Fourthly, and I think this is probably the most important reason John writes this, it answers the question of who would care for the disciples once uh, Jesus ascended to the Father. How can they be committed followers of Jesus when he isn't physically present? He talked about it in those chapters in the upper room, but that was just theory, right, at that point. Now the rubber is going to meet the road, and he wants them to understand this. How can they be committed followers when he's not there? And, and that question can be extended to us because we don't have Jesus physically present with us. How can we be committed followers of one who's not here? How can we know that he's going to care for us? How can we know that? What's it going to look like to follow Jesus? Someone wants to know, how do I follow Jesus? What would you, what would you tell them? All of these questions will be answered in this chapter as we consider that thought. How can I be a committed Christian So today I'm going to just show us two things I think come out of this passage, two foundational things that answer that question. One, do not rely on self-effort. Do not rely on self-effort. And two, do rely on spiritual power. Two foundational things that we must look at today. So we're going to look at the first 14 verses of John chapter 21. Let's read it. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, 
have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for this time we have together to be in your word. And Lord, we recognize once again that this is the powerful word of God. And so Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to be present with us today, to reveal truth. Lord, guide us into truth. We want to know you better. We want to understand the the passage that we might understand what you wanted to teach the disciples then so that we can know what you want to teach us today. Would you prepare our hearts for what you want to teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, the first point here I really want to make is, is if we want to be a committed Christians, committed followers of Christ, how do we do that? The first thing, and it's a foundational thing, is don't rely on self-effort. Don't rely on self-effort. And I think we'll see that in the first five verses. So let's look at these. Look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way, he showed himself. So he says, after these things, that is a common uh, phrase that John has been using all through his gospel, right? We see a passage of time taking place. And that, the reason is, if you notice your, your sheet once again, there has been a time, some time that has um, transpired. Uh, this appearance takes, takes place after the appearance to, to the 11 when Thomas was present with, with them. Uh, that is number 13 on your, your sheet. But the next one, number 14, you can see it takes place sometime in the following 32 days. So it's been a period of time, a period of time where you don't really know. But we can imagine it's been quite a number of days. And so it's after these things, after all those things transpired, there's some time that um, lapses, and then we have this appearance. John uses that same phrase all through his gospel to say, some time has passed. Okay. Now, this is the seventh appearance, and John is the only one who gives us this account. It's the account of Jesus appearing to some, not all, of the disciples, way up north in Galilee. Um, I know it says Sea of Tiberias there. It's simply an alternative for Sea of Galilee. Uh, We'll see in a a moment when we go back to John chapter 6, verse 1. But it was more commonly known as such when John wrote this this gospel. Now, why? This is the question that we should be asking is, is, why is he up in Galilee. Why are any of them up in Galilee? Well, that's where Jesus told them that uh, he, they needed to meet him. He prophesied about it, about it in Mark chapter 14, in verses 27 to 28. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, 
I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus prophesied on the night he was betrayed that he would, he would be stricken, right? Strike the shepherd. They would scatter. Uh, he would rise again, and they would meet up in Galilee. Now, Jesus knew when he made that prophecy that the disciples did not understand what he meant by, after I have been raised. We just saw that last week. We saw none of them expected Jesus to be raised. The women didn't expect Jesus to be raised. They went there to anoint his dead body. No one expected Jesus to be raised. Um, In fact, the only one that realized what took place after they saw the empty tomb was who? John, that's right. John is the only one, after seeing the tomb, realized Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. But they didn't expect they didn't expect it. The angels at the tomb also told the women to remind the disciples of the fact that Jesus was going into Galilee because Jesus did not plan on them remembering that little fact. So we have some angels that stuck by. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, all of us tell about the angels' appearance to the women, but only Matthew and Mark mention the fact that Jesus is going into Galilee. And I'll give you Ma- uh, Matthew's account in chapter 28, verses 5 to 7. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So you have Jesus prophesying it. You have the angels there at the tomb to make sure the women hear that. Now go get my brothers the message as well. And just to be sure they got the message, Jesus himself appears to the women and gives the same message. Just a few verses later, Matthew 28, 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So they all get the message, right? Where are they going to see Jesus? In Galilee. So they're going to need to move to to Galilee. Now also notice that in verse 1, John sort of emphasizes this phrase, showed himself. Right? He says, after these things, Jesus showed himself. And then he says, and in this way, he showed himself. Um, this is an important, I think, phrase because he uses it twice. Uh, showed is rao. It means to make manifest. And I think, as we mentioned last week, the statements here used twice and the use of rao emphasize the truth that after the resurrection in Jesus' glorified resurrection body, uh, he was unrecognizable. There was something different about him. Um, and because he was unrecognizable, he chose to reveal himself to whomever he wished whenever he wanted. We saw that last, um, last week as well. Mary thought Jesus was the gardener, right? Until he said, Mary, and he revealed himself to her. The disciples thought he was a ghost, right? Until he said, nope, come here, check it out, look, give me some food. The two men on the road to Emmaus thought he was a stranger. Like, where have you been? You haven't heard about all this stuff going on? They didn't know who he was until he made himself known. And you know, what's true of Jesus physically here is also true of Jesus spiritually today. Because no one can call him Lord unless the Spirit does so. All right? You, you, you want to know Jesus, Jesus must reveal himself to you. Right? It is a work of the Spirit. We've been seeing this all through the Gospel of John. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, Paul writes this, Therefore I make known to you that no one uh, speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So you must have that first. It's a work of Jesus. He does the revealing. We don't go, and now Jesus appear, right? We don't, we don't have any power to do that. But he knows our hearts. And here 
we see this interesting statement. John is saying he showed himself twice. He's manifesting himself to his disciples. Now, how does he do that? Look at verse, verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So there's a list of seven disciples here. And we went through this in some detail the very first time we opened John's gospel. But we see it's clearly Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel. But then you have the sons of, of Zebedee, which are James and John. So we got five names there. We're just missing two names. We don't know exactly who they are, but by process of elimination, we get down to a few choices. And I think I mentioned back in week one, um, probably the best two guesses are Andrew and Philip. Uh, Andrew is Simon's brother anyway, and he and John were disciples of John the Baptist. They followed John the Baptist before they were called into the ministry. So they're, they're a close-knit bunch, and you often see them together. So Andrew is probably one of them. The other is probably Philip, because he was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So they're all from the same uh, hometown. So possibly those two. Um, but John doesn't really seem too concerned with us knowing exactly who they were, because that's not the focus here. Look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. <laughs> you ever had that experience, right? You go out fishing and catch nothing. You know, you can't just go fishing, right, first of all, right? You can't, you got to have all the gear. you got to have the right pole. you got to have the line. you got to have the tackle. You have to have the bait. You have to have all that. You get all that stuff together. You get out to where you need to go, and if you fish all day and catch nothing, you don't feel too good afterwards, right? They fished all night long, and they caught nothing. So you already get the mindset of where these, uh, these men are. They caught nothing. But here's, there's a bigger problem here. Where are they at this moment? They're on, they're on a sea, the Sea of Tiberias, right? Because we have the whole description. He wants to go fishing. They got into a boat. They fished all night. So they're, they're there. Uh, what's the problem with that? Are they supposed to be on the lake? Well, no, because Jesus told them not only to go to Galilee, but where to go in Galilee. In Matthew 28, 16, says this, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Remember many times they're up on that mountain by Galilee? Many times with him. Um, and so that was the meeting place. That was the designation. So here's the picture. They're up there waiting for Jesus. There's just no Jesus. They're waiting on the mountain where they should be. And Peter, being Peter, <laughs> gets impatient, says, you know what? I'm going fishing. And so he leaves. He gets his impulsive announcement out there, I'm going fishing, and they, they join him. Now, you've got to think about this. The Lord had commissioned them in the upper room um, the second in his appearance to them. And you see that in verse 21 of chapter, chapter 20. We just looked at this last week. Jesus said to them again, peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. You remember that? So he is sort of recommissioning them in his post-resurrection state. I am sending you, so you're, you're commissioned to, to go. So they understood their new calling to, to, to ministry. That's certainly true. But what are they trying to do here? What's going on here? Why all of a sudden are they back to their old ways and their, their fishing habits? I think they're trying to go back to something they'd left in order to follow Jesus. Maybe they felt, I don't know, inadequate. Maybe um, they wanted to do something they were successful at, they were good at. Um, Funny enough, they weren't successful, though, were they? They caught nothing. Their lack of success in doing something they knew they could do successfully is a great lesson from the Lord. That's not what the Lord called them to do. 
He didn't call them to go back and fish. In fact, what did he call them to do? To be fishers of who? Men. That's right. Fishers of men. They had left their nets and they had followed him. And there's no going back. There's no going back. Once we put our hand to the plow, there's no going back. Luke says that in Luke 9.62. It's Jesus' words. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Because it takes people committed to following Christ to the end, to the end. And so what's going on here is in a very powerful object lesson for these disciples, right? In their weakened state, even though Jesus has appeared to them, in their impatience, maybe in their discouragement, who knows what's going on, they tried to go back to something they, they were good at. Now listen, there's, fishing is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good pastime. But what does fishing rely upon? Self-effort, right? Self-resources. You need the, the boats and you need the nets and you need all that, right? And Jesus wants them to not only follow him, but rely upon him. And they fail at something they're usually quite successful at. They catch nothing. And so then Jesus appears because now they're ready. Jesus appears. Look at verse four. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So again, they don't recognize him. Um, Some have suggested maybe it's the distance from the boat. That certainly could add uh, to that, although it's close enough for Jesus to speak to Peter from land. I think it's just another one of those cases here. My personal view is that they can't recognize him because what Jesus is doing, you're going to see in a moment, is he's revealing himself, but this time not through his person, this time through his works. He's going to jog their memory, and that's what you're going to see. He's going to jog their memory. Look at verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. Have you any food? Now, Jesus is not just hungry and asking for, you know, a bite here. In fact, the word food is prosphaganio or something like that. Phagion, that's what it is. Um, Anyway, they, um, they have been fishing all night, right? Jesus asks if they have any food. He's referencing something that is usually eaten with, with bread. So he's not even asking for bread which is usually fish. So he's saying, have you caught some fish? So some of your translations might say fish. Um, Mine says food, the New King James. Um, Some say meat. So he's asking specifically if they had a successful catch, and they hadn't. Now, why is it he's asked that question? He wants them, he wants them to see that their their human weakness in relying upon themselves is going to lead to failure. Have you caught anything? No, (laughs) no. They didn't. And the reason is they need to start relying on another power. You know, one of the first things you learn as a Christian um, is that, that, it, that while there is a certain amount of effort in Bible reading and prayer and those things, it's got to be generated from within. We're going to see that some more um, as we move on. But it's not about effort, right? We don't enter the kingdom in effort. We don't get his grace by effort. Um, but we are called to commit to following him. There is a synergy that's going to take place here, and we're going to see that. So don't rely upon self-effort, but do rely upon spiritual power. We see the failure here at the beginning, but now we'll see him implement the spiritual power, which will jog their memory. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. That is very interesting, isn't it? It's obviously a miracle because they've been fishing all night. They caught nothing. And now this guy shows up on the beach, tells them to throw their net back in. And they don't just catch one. 
They don't just catch a dozen. They catch so many that they can't even bring the net in. It's a multitude of fish. Does this miracle jog your memory? It should be because it should make you think of Luke chapter 5. Turn to Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at this. This is not a coincidence, folks. This is what Jesus was planning. The miracle of the catching of the fish took place when Jesus first called his disciples. He used this exact same miracle to get them to respond to the calling. In Luke chapter 5, let's look at this. In Luke chapter 5, I just want you to see the similarities here, beginning in verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. That's also a name for the Sea of Galilee, uh, so is the Sea of Chenereth. And they saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Does that sound familiar? All night they caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled with both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Well, there you go. You see why they're all together here at the, the sea fishing. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Isn't that interesting? Jesus used this miracle to get the men to respond to their calling. And they did, right? You're going to be fishers of men now. And you're going to forsake all and you're going to follow me, uh, follow me. But now they sort of have forgotten that they had forsaken all. They started uh, to go back to their old ways. And so Jesus used the same miracle to get them to remember their calling. The first time is to respond to the calling. The second time, remember that calling. I'm going to do the same exact miracle. Same one, right? Oh, throw your net on that side of the boat. Fished all night long, caught nothing. Throw over there. And they catch all these fish. I think sometimes we can forget why we're following Jesus. <laughs> maybe we no longer feel his presence in the same powerful way that maybe we did at first when we were all on fire and excited. Maybe we become, uh, I don't know, discouraged because we don't have the same drive as before. I think that many times those uh, feelings um, stem from a, a gradual shift. There's a gradual shift in our lives from relying on Christ and his power to relying on self. We start to get to the place where we're like, I got this. I got this. When we're young in the faith, we know we don't got this. Right? We're just like, Christ, help me. I don't know what I'm doing. But later we start to get too self-confident. We can, we can drift away. We really can. You know, one of my first passages of scripture I memorized was a very helpful passage um, about this. It was Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, and let the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. I love that. That he understands and knows me. Right, don't glory 
in, in wisdom or might or riches. What, what are you if you're glorying in those things? You're relying on what? Your own resources, right? Your own power. What we need to do is be committed followers of Christ. We're to glory in God because it's in him that we find every spiritual um, resource that we need. Now, here's what's amazing. Peter, later on, will tell us that very thing. So he will get the picture. He will remember this object lesson very clearly. In 2 Peter chapter 1, when he wrote this, he was thinking of this. Verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Peter writes that. And his divine power has given us everything that we, we need for life and for godliness. Peter realizes that. But notice here that Jesus doesn't allow them to remain in that state of, of failure and self-reliance. He comes to them. He comes to them. And he reminds them of this very important lesson. Trust in me. So, so how, how do they respond? Do they, do they remember? Does it jog their memory? Well, it jogs one person's memory, John's. Look at this. Look at verse, uh, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, we've well established who that is by this point, that is the disciple, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. So John is the first one to recognize it's the Lord, probably again because he's the one that remembered or, or realized, believed is what it says, believed that Jesus had risen from the dead when he walked into the tomb. Now, Jesus has appeared to all of them before this, right? Two times. So here he's appeared to them again, but they don't recognize him. He is revealing himself, but he's revealing himself in his power. You're going back to your old ways. I want to reveal something to you. This is how I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to care for you even though I won't be physically present. And John gets it. He's always the first one to perceive, isn't he? He seems like he's the first one to recognize Jesus. He's the, he's the first one in the tomb, but he only peers in. Um, but, and then he's the first one to believe. But, but Peter's the opposite, right? He, he's, the, he's the first one to jump into the sea here. He, he's the first one to run straight into the tomb. Seems like John is always quicker to perceive, but Peter's always quicker to act. And so here, John says that it's the Lord and Peter acts. When he heard that it was Lord, he put on his outer garment for he removed it and he plunged into the sea, probably because of that time of year, it was warm on the sea and he just took on that. So he just had his undergarments on. So he just, because it always seems weird. Why would you put on the garment to jump into the sea, right? He's thinking modesty, it's the Lord. I'm gonna put it back on. And he jumps into the sea and he starts swimming for land, even though the others are coming in the boat. They're just taking too much time because they're dragging all the fish. I do love this because Peter's driven by his intense desire to be with the Lord. He wants to be with his Lord. He cannot wait for those boats. But here's what's interesting. Once they all come to the shore, okay, he's been announced. It's the Lord. Peter's coming in. They're all coming in. They see something here. What's, what's sitting on the shore uh, waiting for them? Look at verse 9. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Where'd the fish and bread come from? Jesus had just come and asked them if they had any fish. You have fish out there? Is he just being a glutton? I mean, do you know, I need more. It's a miracle of fish, isn't it? It's a miracle of creating fish. 
We know it's not fish from the boat because it says that as soon as they had come to land, they saw the fish. This is fish that Jesus created. Now, when he had done that before, what is Jesus reminding of them here, right? Remember how I called you? Boom, fish, right? Now they come to land. Remember how I provided for you? Boom, fish. It's in John chapter 6. Go back to John chapter 6. It's the feeding of the 5,000. You see what Jesus is doing? Jogging their memory. Did I provide for you and a whole multitude of people? He sure did. John chapter 6, very famous feeding of the 5,000 miracle, one of the signs that John chooses for this gospel. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So there he says that. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Do you remember that? Are they going to rely on their resources or his? It was a test. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to, to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So there's the miracle that Jesus did when he created the fish. And notice it was a test when he asked, how are we going to feed all these people? I wonder. <laughs> Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was going to provide for them miraculously. And Jesus here calls them out there and says, do you have you fish? No, we don't have anything. We'll, we'll try that side, right? And they get the fish and they start coming in. And lo and behold, he has fish and he has bread. He is jogging their memory. He compassionately met the needs of those people on the hillside then, and he's compassionately meeting the needs of his tired and hungry disciples who've been toiling all night. He prepares them breakfast. What he's doing here is he's showing them, them in a very concrete and practical way that he will provide and care for them, even in his absence. Also, he is serving them, isn't he? That's the model that he set up in the upper room. He served them at the Passover meal when he washed their feet. And in Luke's account of that evening, he quotes Jesus saying this in Luke twenty two twenty seven: for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. This won't change when Jesus departs. He will continue to meet their needs, which they had been unable to to meet on their own, in their own disobedience. They couldn't meet those things in themselves. And I think that's what Jesus was trying to teach them in that upper room discourse. You know, he was talking about all those things. When I go, I'm going to send another helper to you. And, you know, and then he talked about the praying aspect of those things. Then you ask whatever you want, whatever you need, and it will be given to you. 
But that's fine, Jesus. That sounds good. But can I really trust that? So he comes to them here and he meets them and says, yes, you can trust it. I'm, I'm trying to show you that this is how it's going to work from here on out. And I want to remind you of those verses. Go back to John chapter 14. These are the things that he's trying to jog their memory about. John chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. John chapter 14, 13 and 14. Look what he says. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Remember, we talked about this. We took a long time on Sunday talking about what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? Is it just if you tag on that little phrase at the end of your prayer, you get whatever you want? Oh, I better say, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And then you get whatever you want. Is that what he's talking about? What's it mean to ask in Jesus' name? It's meaning to ask according to his will, right? What does Jesus want? He wants the furthering of his kingdom. So we're praying for things that will further that. We're praying for things that are in accordance with his will. And if you ask whatever those things are, you're going to get them granted. Because we are commissioned by him to go and accomplish his will. That's what he's saying. In fact, in John chapter 15, he reminded them of this again. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. There it is again. You can ask what you want and it's going to give it to you. But what's the, what's the, the key there? If you abide, right? If you abide in him and his words abide in you. If his words are abiding in you, you're going to be wanting to do what his words want you to do. That's his will. Look on verse 8. But this, my father, by, by this my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Their joy isn't full right now, right? They're not relying on him. They're not relying on his resources, but their own. Look at verse 16 again. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Jesus wants fruit from you, right? Fruit, lasting fruit. Jesus will provide for us, provided we abide in his love, right? In obedience, and the disciples needed to remember that because they left that mountain, got impatient. They weren't waiting for him. And they went down and tried to kind of go back to the things they were used to doing. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. So evidently that miraculous uh, fish he had made that he provided there at the coals was just intended to kind of get the meal going. He's going to add their fish to complete it. Just a random fact there or not? Interesting, huh? I think this is a perfect picture of how all of this works. When, when we exercise our gifts in reliance upon his spiritual power, in obedience to his will, then we see results. Did Jesus use the force and bring up that multitude of fish out of the water and bring it here? Or did he use their efforts? It was their efforts, right? They still had to struggle to get that net in the boat, but it was his power that produced the fish. Do you see what I'm saying? So he produced the fish, they use the effort to bring in the fish, and he brings them in. So you've got your fish there. You've got my fish here. We're going to put these fish together. His power provided the fish. Here's my fish. Here's yours. Let's, let's cook them up together. That's the synergy that I was talking about. It is working out what he has already worked in. Does that make sense? He's working out what's already in there. That's the effort that we have to do, but it's already in there to begin with. You don't have to create this. They didn't have to create the multitude of fish. They just needed to 
be obedient and bring it in. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, that's where we find this, this concept. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I just love that verse. Work it out because God's already worked it in. You're working out what he's worked in. Aren't you glad that that part is there? Because otherwise, just work it out and good luck on that. Whole lot of effort. Someone comes up and says, oh, you just need to try a whole lot harder. You're you're going the wrong direction. You're going to go the direction of the disciples. You're going to go backwards. Instead, I need to rely a lot more. I need to trust a lot more. Bring some of that fish you have, and we're going to put these things together. Love it. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many... The net was not broken. I read many amazing and fanciful explanations about the meaning of the significance of the 153 fish. And I found the secret. I I discarded them all. I found the one. Doesn't mean anything at all. Nothing. I think it means they caught a lot of fish. I don't think here we're going to have some big hidden meaning, right? Simply, the obvious explanation is that there were a lot of fish. And they counted them because they wanted to see how many fish. And plus, they usually split the fish, right? So that odd one there, we got to toss off there. But here's, here's the reason. It's another specific, very specific detail that signifies the presence of an eyewitness testimony, right? That John has been doing that all along. There's all these just little bits. Oh, there were 153 fish. Oh, uh, the net wasn't broken, right? Uh, the guy brought torches, right? The, all these little things all along the way have been signifying that there is an eyewitness uh, present. And John is going to, he has just said that in chapter 20, right? That why, that's why the blood and water came out. I was close enough. It was at the foot of the cross. I'm an eyewitness to it. I saw him die. Yes, there can be some prophetic explanations about that, but John says his reason was he was there and he saw him die. That's John's words. That's the author's words. I think the author's doing the same thing here. He's going to wrap it up at the end. I'm the guy who saw all these things. I'm present. I'm one of the seven. He knows. He knows that. So this is, this is just the description of there's a lot of fish, and they're bringing them in. Look at verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? That's, a, that's an interesting uh, thought there. Jesus tells them to come and eat breakfast. This is a call to fellowship, just like we had this morning. Right? This is a call to fellowship. We're okay. Come and have fellowship. Maybe they're embarrassed. Maybe they're a bit ashamed that they, they had to learn this lesson again. Right? Maybe they're all kind of sitting off to the side like, dang it, I can't believe we did this again. Right? Um, they hadn't awaited for him obediently. They didn't trust in, in him. And they quickly returned to their old profession, their old ways. But he's offering them restoration of relationship here. It's full. It's, it's complete. And you know what? He always does that always. It's not partial. If you come to him, you don't just get a part of Jesus. He's like, well, I'll give you this much. You have to earn my trust. No, (laughs) you get all of Jesus. You get full and complete restoration with him. And the note about them not daring to ask him, who are you, indicates once again that there's a difference in his resurrection body, that he obviously doesn't look like exactly like the person they remember, even though their eyes have been opened to realize who he is because he opened their eyes to the works this time, the signs. Earlier in the last chapter, 
He appeared physically to show them it was him physically. Here, he's appearing to them in a different, a little bit different, so that they only see the, the, the works is what's being magnified, the works, because they're going to have to rely upon his power from here on out and not their own. I hope you see the significance of that. That's clearly what's being highlighted um, here. All right, so all of this, I imagine, is just overwhelming for them. Um, none of the disciples accept that invitation to go eat with Jesus. They all kind of sit off to the side. And so here's what Jesus does. He, uh, he gets up and serves them. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. So they ate. John doesn't give us the detail about, you know, this meal and what they talked about while they ate it. We just get the idea that they, they ate. But what will be important is that this will later serve to support the testimony of the disciples that, that Jesus had risen from the dead. They will remember this moment. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, again, it's going to be Peter, is speaking to Cornelius and his household. And in chapter 10, verses 40 and 41, he says this, speaking of Jesus, him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. That's, that's a powerful verse. He didn't just appear to everyone. No, he appeared to those who were chosen. Do you see that? Who, who, who Jesus wanted them to see. The, the, those are the ones he appeared before, who would be witnesses, ones who would go out and testify to the truth. And they recognized the fact that they ate and drank with Jesus as well. That's a testimony. We ate and drank with him. We, we saw him. He was there with us. And this is not the only time he appeared to them. And John reminds the readers of that. And that's what he ends with in this little section. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. That's verse 14. Third time he meets with them. The point of this event was to help the disciples overcome the feelings of, of doubt and fear and weakness and, and failure, all of which had caused them to drift back to their, their old ways. And that can happen in our lives too. But we don't have an unloving God. We have a gracious and forgiving Savior. He comes to us lovingly, reminding us of our calling, sometimes through difficulty, allowing us to, to fail, sometimes through chastening, reminding us of his lordship, that he is our Lord. And in the end, Jesus just, he uses weak and sinful people to accomplish his will because guess what? There's no other kind of people. We're all weak and we're all sinful. He really doesn't have a choice, does he? Jesus, what he's done here is he has forever cemented in their minds through these, through these events the importance of their, their calling, that they must remain faithful to that because Jesus is going to use these 11 to spread the, the, the news of the gospel and the church will begin through them. So chapter 21 really is the beginning of the church in my mind. They don't have the full power and presence of the Holy Spirit that will come at Pentecost. But there was, a, there was a chance, you're like, oh, where were the times in history where the church maybe almost didn't happen? Well, here's where it almost didn't happen. They almost just gave up. They almost just went back. But it was Jesus that came to them and said, no, you're going to go forward and you're going to do it in my power, in my power. I'm going to be with you, not physically, but my power will be with you. And spiritually speaking, we, we know he is present with us because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
all of which he was trying to teach them up in that upper room. So, just to close, think about this. There's one person that sits among them when all this is going on, and that's Peter. Peter. No one in this group of seven men has failed as terribly as Peter in Peter's mind. You know Peter's thinking, oh, man, I'm, I'm the worst of the lot. How will Jesus help Peter get past that? How will he help him go forward and be the leader of the church? Well, guess what? You're going to have to come back next week to see. Because next week, Jesus will reinstate Peter, and we will finish the Gospel of John. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that you didn't give up on these men. Maybe when they were ready to give up, maybe when they were unsure about the future, unsure about how you could provide for them or care for them going forward. How could they do this impossible task of carrying on your mission without you? I thank you that you appear to them graciously, lovingly, and you reminded them of your amazing power. Lord, we certainly are no different today. We certainly can look at the task of spreading your truth in this world today so hostile against the truth wanting nothing to do with it whatsoever. Lord, we see the church numbers diminishing, churches closing, turning into pubs and rock wall climbing centers and who knows what. Lord, we, we can begin to get a little discouraged. We can begin to think, oh, what are we even doing this for? Lord, help us not to give up and begin just going back to our old ways. Maybe we've gotten here because we've just gotten used to relying on our own resources. and We've forgotten to rely on the one for where the power comes from, you. Lord, we, we recognize that it's your church and that you promised to build your church. And so we go forward in confidence and in your power. Lord, help us to be committed believers today, committed followers of Christ, relying upon not our own resources, not our own strength, recognizing that we are weak, but yet when we are weak, well, we, then we're strong. We're strong in the power of Christ. Thank you for this wonderful reminder today. Be honored and glorified today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.